Our scripture passage for this morning, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Wonderful. Thank you, Dave. And so uh, keep your Bibles open to that spot. We are going to we're going to really follow along with uh, with the text. Pretty closely this morning. I hope that's true of every sermon, but certainly you want to be uh, able to see what's going on. Let me pray before we uh, before we hear from the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, that you uh, are a living God. You're a God who has spoken and continues to speak through your word. Thank you that we can trust it. Thank you that it is powerful for changing us and teaching us and bringing us to become the people that you have called us to be. Lord, we know that we are not yet where and what we ought to be. But Lord, we, we don't lose heart. We're not discouraged because you are still working. We trust your word when it says that when you began a good work in us, that you were not going to stop halfway through, that you're going to bring it to completion. So Father, may you uh, continue that work this morning as we put ourselves before you to hear from your word and to obey it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you're looking at Romans chapter 12 and wondering uh, what's going on, and maybe this is your first time, and it is for some of you, wondering what's going on in the church, what's happening at Evergreen Chapel right now. Well, we're in the middle of a series right now, and uh, on that note, I wasn't here last week, and I'm, I'm thankful for the way um, our church just functions and thrives with or without uh, an elder present or a pastor or whatever, and uh, you... Um, supportive and open your hearts to Dan, who, who shared last week. Aside from that, we are in the middle of a series, and two weeks ago I began it. Our series is called Forward Together. Forward Together. And right now, uh, that ser sermon series is really about building up in some areas where we need to look at in the church in order to live properly together. So we don't just want to go forward, and we don't just want to be together. We need both of those things to happen simultaneously, that we're moving forward, but doing it together. It's kind of like a house remodel. Some of you are very familiar with that concept. It's not a brand new house, per se, where everything goes up from scratch, 
We're doing a bit of a remodel right now. Our church has been around for about two years. We're trying to tear up some of the old, and we're trying to replace it with some new, some sound framing, some sound, some better insulated windows. Maybe we're, we're just building stuff up. We're fixing some stuff that needed work. We're not going to, we can't or we won't exhaustively describe all of church life in this small series. But we will enter, I think, it, with some fair precision into the areas that I think we need to do our greatest work in. My job, and I talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, is to oversee the establishment and the health of Evergreen Chapel insofar as we claim to be a Christian church. I'll describe what I mean by that a little bit more. As I said, we're doing some things right now in the life of our church that should have and needed to be done two years ago when we decided to plan. I'll readily admit that. Work that was not done is being done now. And in some ways, we're doing a bit of a reset in terms of church culture and church understanding. I was a bit more naive two years ago. I've learned a lot since then, uh, by no means as much as I need to, but we're doing some stuff now that, that really should have been done a long time ago. And what I mean by that is that our particular message, what about serving, we talked about the servant king, and we sang songs that remind us of serving in Hosanna. Serving inside the church is a necessary, critical pillar of Christian expression of a multiplying and discipling church. And I talked about a multiplying and discipling church two weeks ago. Okay, so I'm not going to develop that this morning, but that's what we need to be as a church in order to claim status as a true Christian church. Without certain fundamental elements, we are nothing more than a glorified Bible study. Okay, that's true. It doesn't matter how many people come. It doesn't matter how big your building is. It doesn't matter how outstanding your music is. If certain elements of a church are missing, then you don't have what the Bible describes as a church. One of those things we talked about two weeks ago was elders. If you don't have elders ruling a church actually, you do not have a church. You have a Bible study. Okay, and I want to make sure that we are not satisfied with just becoming a big Bible study. I want to be a church. I want to be a faithful biblical church, okay? And I, and I want to dig into the areas that we need to develop and grow in order to become that church because it's not out of reach because God is alive and he's at work. And so whether or not you might agree or disagree with me as to whether or not we're there now, we certainly will not be there without you. Okay? We won't be there without you. And so Forward Together, is, it's, a, it's a must listen to series for those who are serious about Jesus and his church here at Evergreen Chapel. And so if you missed the message from two weeks ago, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. And unfortunately, the first 15 minutes are cut off. But our message on eldership is critical in our understanding of what it means to be a church. So I encourage you to hear that and listen to that. And if your friend is not sitting beside you this morning, take a mental note, tell them, hey, you've got to listen to this message. You've got to listen to this whole series forward together on serving. Unfortunately, it's almost impossible to get everybody in a room together at the same time. And so that's why we're thankful for MP3s and our podcast. And that is available. Podbean, we do Evergreen Chapel podcast. You can check it out on iTunes. There's lots of ways to hear that if you're serious about what's going on here. So, Romans chapter 12. And Dave read for us a, a little list of things that are important ways that you can serve. And, and maybe we should just jump in and say, hey, where can you sign up? What, what are you good at? But before we get to a practical list of suggestions for ways for you to serve the church, we need to understand the theology 
behind serving the church, serving the Lord. Uh, because guess what? We are not looking for volunteers at this church. We are not looking for volunteers. We are looking for Christ-adoring worshipers of God who serve because they love the Lord and want to exalt Him. Okay? So we're not looking for volunteers. We're looking for worshipers of God. So our context shows us three things um, that sort of my outline is going to follow. How do we worship God? That's how our text begins. Number two, what is the context of our worship? Where and how does it take place? And then number three, how does serving the church, serving each other, fit in with the concept of worship? So we're going to look at those three things. Number one, how do we worship God? Look at the text. 12, verse 1 in, in the book of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, this is addressed to everybody, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, what's that W word? Worship. Let's say it together, come on. Worship. That's your spiritual worship. Well, how do we worship God? Let's find out. It's right there in the text. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's worship defined. Okay, that's worship defined in its most bare bones, uh, basic way in all of scripture. Sometimes in our minds, don't we think of music as being, that's what worship is, and all this other stuff is a bunch of other stuff? Or our lives are just something else that happens on the outside? The Bible says, no, 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 no. Worship is your life. It's done with your body. It's tangible. It's how you live. It's not just a guy playing a guitar and singing specifically Christian songs. Worship can be everything about your life. So let's contrast that with maybe what our idea of worship was before. Can't worship just be the ideas that you have about God in your mind? Can't that just be worship? Like, oh, I adore you, God. Inside my heart, inside my mind, I think about you. I meditate on you. I love you. That's my worship. And then everything else, that's just my private life. How I worship God is my private thought pattern. No. Bible doesn't let you go there. Bible doesn't let you define it that way. Bible says your worship is to present your body as a living sacrifice. Notice he doesn't say a literal sacrifice. A living sacrifice, not go die for Jesus, and that's worship, although some do. The, the normative calling for a Christian to worship God is to present your body, which means your life, everything that you do, as a spiritual, as a living sacrifice. That sounds pretty all-encompassing. What he's saying is that your physical existence Everything about who you are, how you study, how you live, how you work, how you are entertained, how you spend your money, your very physical existence speaks to whether or not you worship the living God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't just present your mind. Don't just present your emotions. Don't just present your Sunday morning routine. But present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. So worship and action are directly tied together. That's what we're seeing here. Action, life, habits, patterns 
and worship are tied directly together. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? The reason is because of this little word that we see in Scripture all the time and we can never miss, and you should highlight it every time you see it in your Bible, that word, therefore. Because Paul is laying a pretty heavy demand on you right now, isn't he? The word of God. Hey, you want to worship God? You need to lay your life down in every way. Why? What causes you to say that? Well, that little word, therefore, is the reason why this command is, is rational for Paul. It's the reason why this command is reasonable and why he can bring himself to speak such a demanding word to Christians. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what's the therefore? So he's commanded you to do something, and because we're not in Romans right now, we have to work a little bit backwards to figure out, well, why is he calling us to worship God in this way? Because of chapter 11, verse 36, this little claim. Look at it in your, in your Bible. For from him, which is God, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Don't miss that. For through him and to him are the majority of things, some things, church things, Christian-y things, all things are to him. For what? His glory. His glory. To him be glory forever. Paul says, therefore, Christians, you also put your bodies down as a living sacrifice to him. That means that everything in this whole universe exists for the purpose of exalting God. The stars, the moon, the sun, the trees. Proverbs chapter 8 says this. Proverbs chapter 8.29 says, When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Did you know that nature behaves the way it does because God commanded it to? And because nature obeys him? Nature is an obedient realm to the ways of God. Are we? I was just talking with Kevin this morning about the tides, how they can rise between three feet and a hundred feet out on the east coast. Every molecule that that water covers on the earth is because God has allowed it to go there. All of creation obeys the word of God and gives praise to him. Romans chapter 1 talks about that. You can just look out and say that, see that God is there. He's real. He made everything. He's glorified in creation. And so when Paul commands Christians to lay down their lives as a, as a living sacrifice, all we are doing is joining with the rest of history and nature in praise to God. Because all things are to him. All things are to him. And so we are commanded to follow suit, to fall in line, to join with the rest of nature in praising God. It's not just so that the church is this holy little group that we love the Lord and nobody else does. What Paul is saying is that when you lay your life down for God, you are joining with creation in praising Him. And we know and we prayed this morning that um, all things, we don't see all things in subjection to Christ yet. But we know that He will reign until all things are. 
And so in this day now, we urge people to come and to present their bodies as a living sacrifice because everything else is doing the same. All nature obeys his word. And so I pray that we would as a church as well. So worshiping God is a precursor. It's the source of Christian service in the church. Again, not looking for volunteers, looking for worshipers. Looking for worshipers. Let's go on in our text. Do not be conformed to this world. This is all part of the same command. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So entail in this call for spiritual worship, which takes place in your life, the decisions you make, everything that you are, entailed in this is the concept of making countercultural decisions, countercultural decisions that are informed by a spiritually renewed mind. Entailed in this call to worship God is the concept that we as Christians are to make decisions that are countercultural, that are informed by a mind that has been renewed by God, by His Word. Don't miss that in the text. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind as an alternative to being conformed to this world. So let's be totally clear. Worshiping God the way the Bible describes worshiping Him will be culturally costly, if not revolutionary. Let me say that one more time. True biblical worship will be culturally costly, if not revolutionary. As Christians, if we are conformed to the culture, we are abandoning our call to worship God truly. We're abandoning and neglecting our call to worship truly if your life is conformed to that of cultures. That means that all of our decisions, everything that we choose to do with our bodies, our time, our money, our thoughts, our eyes, our ears, all of those things reflect your priority structure, whether or not you like it. Some of us maybe think that we can compartmentalize our faith into a little area that says, well, this is my Christian stuff. I go to church, and I just make sure I don't watch the worst movies, and then the rest I just kind of do my own thing, as long as I'm sort of Christian in these little areas. The Bible says that's, that's not an option for you. Your whole life is a spiritual sacrifice. And it reflects whether or not you have prioritized the Lord above all other things. What was the worst problem that Israel ever had in the Old Testament? Idolatry. We somehow think that that doesn't affect us. We are one of the worst plagued churches in human history by idolatry. Because the things that we decide to do put other things above God and worshiping Him fully. And so I want you to engage with your, with your schedule. I want you to engage with your, with your thoughts a little bit and ask, are my decisions countercultural, and do they reflect that I have prioritized the Lord above everything else? The way is narrow that leads to life, said Christ. If this sounds demanding, it's because it is. I don't preach this lightly thinking that it's just turning over a new leaf in your life. It's a totally comprehensive call on everything that you are. 
We will never get to serving the church effectively without embracing that we are first a countercultural community devoted to the glory of Christ. Not the glory of ourselves, not our careers, not our bank accounts, not our pop culture awareness, or anything else that might supersede our love for the Lord. Uh, more specifically, and again, this is harkening back to the work that we need to do here at Evergreen. Evergreen Chapel, although in a in my opinion, an awesome place to worship, an awesome place to meet each other, an awesome place to pray. Although that is true, we will not survive as a church unless we are made of Christians who, for the love of worshiping God, live sacrificially toward Him and toward each other. We will not survive as an expression of a Christian church. God does not have to continue a work um, of a church plant just because it has begun. He's not going to abandon you as a Christian. Of course not. But God has no obligation to honor the lampstand that is here at Evergreen Chapel if we are not willing and, and ready to obey and to walk out what we say we do. With all the cards on this table, this church came very close mid-last summer to not existing. And by God's grace, I think that he has shown and proved that he wants this to continue. He wants this to be a light and a witness and a source of life to our community and a source of revival in our town. I believe that. But I also believe that that goes hand in hand with embracing these things and truly examining ourselves as individuals. Again, my job is to oversee this church, and so I would be unfaithful if I didn't lay out what it really looked like to be a church. And so do you, do you love where you go to church? Is this where you want to be? Is this where you want to worship? Do you want to see the Lord work through Evergreen Chapel? Because I do, and we need to do it together. That's why this series is called Forward Together. So we need to live sacrificially toward him. And also, likewise, we need to deny, to deny cultural norms that distract us or keep us from the church. Did you hear that? Sometimes we are comforted by the normal comparison that we have with that of the world. Well, this is sort of the way everybody lives. We are actually called, as Paul just said, to not be conformed to the world. We need to deny cultural norms that otherwise distract us from Christ. That doesn't mean don't ever be entertained. That doesn't mean don't go on vacation. That doesn't mean don't enjoy life, the things that God has given you. Go to the cottage, clean your boat, do whatever you do. But deny the things that distract you from your devotion and love to Christ. We can worship Him in all things, but very often idols come in uh, and rob Christ of His rightful place. How did Jesus say it? What were His words? Seek first the kingdom everything else will be added to you. That's the way Jesus put it, very succinctly. Number two, what is the context of our worship? So worship is important. Worship is critical. It's the undergirding of true service in the church. Uh, what is the context of our worship? It's in relationship to others. Let's look at verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say that every one of you uh, ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each with the measure of faith that God has assigned him or her. So in the context of worship, there is an assumption in the text. It's assumed that this is lived out alongside everybody else. 
the context of worship. He says, oh, by the way, as you're thinking through these things, as you're growing in maturity and learning to discern what is good and perfect in the Lord, as you're growing and as you're learning, don't become prideful toward other people. Some of you might think, well, I'm already a pretty discerning person. I've already laid down a lot of my life for the Lord. I'm pretty self-sacrificing. I'm pretty well there. But what about him or her? And suddenly pride can creep in because these are a source of comparisons, aren't they? Paul says, now before you get going down that path, I want you to consider your community. I want you to consider the people around you. This is to curb our nature to compare and judge. Paul says here in the text, think soberly. Think with sober judgment. This means with like, with, with reality. Without being puffed up or intoxicated by your own accomplishment or your own maturity. Don't be puffed up in the things that God is doing in your life. Think with sober judgment. Don't think of yourself in a high-minded way. Well, boy, I'm just glad I'm not as immature as so-and-so and such-and-such. -such. Curb your judgment. So wherever your worship is at, wherever your discernment is at, consider it as a grace given by God. What does he say? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Is it possible that members in the Christian community are assigned different levels of faith? That might be uncomfortable to you, but it's true. Some people are just kind of a little bit more free. A little bit more free to deny the things that the world pumps at them. A little more free to speak out. A little more free to evangelize. They just have a bigger faith. God has assigned faith to each one. Let's not judge each other. So look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members. He introduces here the body analogy. And this is, the, this is the context of our worship. It happens in the context of the body being together. There is one body with many members. There's an assumption of a gathering together. There's an assumption of an assembly of some kind. That's why, despite how good podcasts and YouTube and all these great things are that we can catch on cable TV or worship hour, all of those things are great. They're great tools, but you know what? Nothing replaces the body being together. Scripture does, scripture does not recognize a church that does not meet together. Scripture assumes that we are together. We are one body of many members. And I think that our being together is a guard against pride. It's a preparation for Christian maturity. Hear that again. Our being together, our gathering together is a guard against pride. Sadly, I think that pride is the most common companion to the isolated Christian. The Christian who refuses to meet with her brother, his or her brother or sisters. The Christian who refuses to meet in the assembly to expose their life to their brothers and sisters, to live in harmony, to live according to God's word, to live humbly and openly and transparently with our brothers and sisters in Christ. People who refuse to do that, sadly, pride is one of the biggest problems there. It's one of the most common companions. Pride either causes us to leave the church and remain alone, or it's something that starts to grow and bud and take root as we stay separated from the church. One way or another, pride is a problem for the isolated Christian, the Christian who does not want to be with other Christians. So that's why the body analogy is so key. And so our, our countercultural realignment of priorities results in something very specific. Our countercultural realignment of priorities results in something 
that results in the body being together. And so this is what I want to lay before you. Is your life sufficiently renewed and informed by God's word such that you prioritize the being together as a body over other things that are also good? It's easy to say no to maybe a rave party that's going to happen on a Sunday morning because you can, in your mind, say, well, God, want, God would definitely rather me be at church than that. But God would never want me to miss a hockey practice. God would never want me to miss a certain opportunity here or there. And to be clear, I'm not saying attendance is, is meant to be some kind of impeccable proof of your love for God. But what I'm saying is, do your decisions reflect a priority of being with the body of Christ over other things that are also good? Now, I was away last week. Funerals come up. Um, life events come up. Opportunities come up. Not uh, remotely preaching some kind of legalistic adherence to attendance to make sure, well, I'm just there, butt in the seat. I'm a Christian. Good, because I'm at church. Not at all. But I'm saying a mind that has been renewed by God and has realigned our priority structures to discern what is good and perfect and acceptable in the sight of God will prioritize and even prize the gathering together of the body of Christ, one body, many members. I pray that Christ uh, even now is realigning our hearts to recognize that that is a deep expression of our worship to him. So let's just summarize before we, before we go into this last section. Before we start serving, we need to recognize from our context that serving is done for God's glory, not ours. It's done so that everything would be subjected to Him. It is done tangibly with our lives, in our bodies, with our decisions, with the actual stuff, the substance of our lives, not just the way you think, not just the affirmations that you can sign off on in your mind. It's done with your life, your body, Number three, that serving comes from maturity and discernment of what pleases God. That's where serving comes from. It comes from maturity and discerning what pleases God. And number four, it must be done humbly in the context of relating to other Christians in a humble way. Not thinking of yourself as better. I'm the best server. I'm the most committed. I'm the blah, 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 blah. Look, so-and-so missed so-and-so Sundays. Not a humble Christian attitude. It must be done humbly. Isn't it funny how maturity and humility are never separated in scriptures? One who might think they're mature because they are full of knowledge but have no humility are completely immature. And so as a church, we express our maturity by how well you love each other despite your differences, but despite your different areas and where you're good and not good. I mean, I try to use the word family very intentionally here at church because families don't always necessarily love each other perfectly all the time, but they strive together, they care about each other, they look out for each other. And that's what we are in Christ, we're a family. So, number three, what should we do? So Paul has said, look, we've got, we have one body, we've got many members, and the members do not all have the same function. I love that. Put that in brackets in your Bible. We do not all have the same function. Very often we confuse the church with a bunch of people who gather in order to watch one person use their gift, or maybe two. Well, those, that's what the church is. It's speaking and it's singing. Uh, that is crazy. If you're not a speaker or a singer, well, you can't really serve the church. Wrong. 
We do not all have the same function. Okay, and that's when he goes on to expound sort of the variety of gifts. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Check out verse 6. What should we do? What should we do having understood this? What should we do if we want to belong to the church and see it grow and see it thrive and see it impact the community and see Christ exalted in it? What should we do? Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. What should we do? How do we apply this sermon? Since you have a gift, use it. How do I worship better than money? How do I display my maturity? How do I love the church? How do I serve Christ? Use your gift. What's your gift? Use it. Let us use them, Paul says. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Did you hear that? Do you love God? Are you committed to his church? Are you committed to worshiping him? Are you committed to living humbly with others in the body? Then use your gifts. Use your gifts. If there's ever a church with a bunch of sideline Christians who believe that their job is to come in and hear a sermon and then go home and feel more holy, then that we are failing as a church if that's what you think church is. A sermon is not for you to go home and feel necessarily just merely filled up. Right? I need to be filled. Don't we often hear that? Well, I'm good. I'm filled because Pastor so-and-so was good this morning. His gift is great. It's really helpful to me. Man, don't we need to be a church that uses our gifts? I benefit from your gifts. You encourage me when you come into church and use your gifts. I am edified. You may not preach to me a 45-minute sermon, but I am edified by the use of your gifts. Now, the gifts are different. That's key. It further emphasizes the analogy of the body. All right, don't we have so many different parts to our body? Fingernails. Have you ever thought about fingernails? What it would be like if we didn't have those? I would not like to imagine that. If you've ever lost one, you can't wait till that tiny fingernail comes back. Right? Your nose, your earlobes. I don't know if they're just there to dangle pretty things from. Your big toe. Have you ever tried to have, have you ever had a bruised big toe and tried to walk? What about kneecaps? There's all these incredible parts of the body that you don't even think about when you get out of bed. And yet if one of them was gone, you would know it. Doesn't mean you can't get out. Doesn't mean you can't drive your car necessarily. But man, do you suffer when not everything's not working together perfectly. Guess what? That's not a, a mistake in the scriptures to help you understand how the church ought to work. You think, well, my gift's is insignificant. Well, guess what? Without it, we don't work quite as well as we would with you. We need your gift. I don't care what it is. Uh, some people might think, well, my gift is so insignificant and Write this down. I definitely I don't really have time to read all of it, but 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this. He addresses this because people might think, ah, my gift is so small. I'm not fancy in what I do. It's not an important thing. Listen to this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Oh, how sad. Poor foot. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
see that one? And this is that sounds silly and rhetorical to us, and yet as Christians, we so live this way. We so live like the church only needs one or two gifts. All they need is a hand, an eye, and a mouth. Because that's all the important visible stuff. Paul also says this. If everything we're hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body. Each one of them as he chose. God arranges the body. God has chosen what you will be in the body and what I will be in the body. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. So on the one hand, you have people who feel insecure about their gift and say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Then you have people like eyes and hands and mouths who say, hey, I'm an eyeball. I don't need the, the ears. Paul says that is equally sinful. Both are foolish positions that deny the reality of the body. If you think because your gift is important that you don't need others, you are going to crash and burn. Especially if you are a pastor who thinks my gift is the most important and I don't need little gifts. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. We all need each other. And so Paul says, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which means if you have a gift that you don't think is quite as shiny or quite as dis put on display, then we honor that and we treasure that gift. If your gift is just to show up early and make sure the toilet paper rolls are full before church, then God bless you. We bestow honor on your gift of sacrificial work. And whatever your gift is, there are no pieces in there by accident. I hope you're seeing that in the body analogy. Can you imagine a church that embraces the interwoven relationship between its members and whose members pull together and serve together for a common good of God's honor? A church that does not or will not embrace that will become a turf war between factions and divisions, each striving for expression of their own vision and their own ambition. Many churches fall into this. And it's not because their people are worse than us or, or any other good church. It happens because people don't embrace the body analogy, recognizing that it is not for necessarily our own good. It is for the glory of God. And he's assembled and he's arranged us together for a purpose as he chose for his own glory. And so we all need to set our business aside and our ambition aside and say, hey, what are we actually going for and are we doing it? That's how the body stays unified. And so I also want to let you know, um, in conjunction with this, we are, we're launching membership at Evergreen Chapel. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that after. But, but this is all together, woven together. To serve the churches, to belong to the churches, to worship God. It's to belong to Him. And I, and I also believe that membership is not something that you, you sign up for just because you want to be affiliated with a certain name or a certain whatever we believe, your doctrine. Membership is something that you express with your life before it's made official on the roster. We do want to make it official. I think that's important. But membership is the way you live your life. Membership in the body. It's how you serve. It's how you love. It's how you uh, consider your brothers and your sisters. And so Paul brings out a few suggestions, and I'm not going to develop these at all, but he, he brings out prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, and acts of mercy. Do you think that's an exhaustive list? 
Uh, it's not at all. Uh, there's also music. There's also visitation and hospitality. There's financial stewardship. There's administration. There are many, many other gifts. Uh, we need gifts here at the church to be expressed. Are you a musician? Well, we're looking for musicians. I don't care if you're not Paul McCartney or Justin Bieber. Use your gift. We need, we need the gift of teaching. We need the gift, the gift of, of gentleness with our children. We need children's teachers. We need those who belong to this church to serve those things that we're doing. The point, of, though, about this is that there are some gifts that we need more of than others. Um, but the point is that Paul emphasizes here not the variety of the gifts, but he emphasizes the execution of the gifts. If your gift is exhortation, then exhort. If your gift is to give, then do it generously with a joyful heart. If your gift is to teach, then teach. If your gift is to lead, then do it excitedly and with zeal. It's the application that Paul's emphasizing here, which means that your gift is not your dormant gift inside of you. Your gift is the doing of your gift. We can't really speak much of gifts unless we speak of them in action and in reality in the church. If your gift is teaching, do not say to yourself, we already have a teacher. That is my gift. I'm thankful that I know that. The Lord made that clear to me kind of a long time ago. I'm really thankful for that. But is your gift teaching? Then you can teach something. We'll figure out what you can teach. But your gift is the doing of your gift. It's not the just inherent that you are it. It's the doing of your gift that is your gift. It's the application of it. It's the appropriate zeal and excitement in what you actually do. You know what? If you've been on the edge of the church, if you're not sure how you've ever fit in, if you wonder how God is going to grow you and express your faith more deeply, probably what's missing is the exciting way that you can see your gifts flourish and be used to bless other people in the church. It is thrilling. It's thrilling. It's thrilling to see your God-given gifts used to bless other people and encourage them. I just want to remind you of the parable of the talents. I definitely don't have time to read it, but God gives, or Jesus talks about this parable where a master gives one talent, three talents, and five talents to servants, right? And two of them go off and do investment and they make a return. One of them buries his coin in the ground. The only servant who is chastised is the one who buries it in the ground. The one who says, I'm too afraid, I don't want to do it, I'm worried about failing. That's the only person that gets chastised by the master. You're allowed to use your talent and fail. You're allowed to use your talent and make mistakes. You are. I mean, it's in the Bible. You don't have to make an 80% return on your investment. You can make a 2% return. You know why? Because we all have gifts that differ. We have faith that differs. So Paul says, whatever your gift is, just do it. Do it excitedly and with cheerfulness. And so I'm going to conclude with this. So have you as a Christian ever struggled with this kind of orphan desire to make an impact, to make a difference? I think we see this in culture all the time, especially in movie stars who kind of feel like, well, maybe my life's not as significant as I wanted it to be, and so I'll get behind some green energy, or I'll get behind uh, founding schools for women, good things, and they go and they get behind a cause. 
Sometimes as Christians, I think we have this tension because we belong to the church, the church of the living God, who's supposed to be the God of everything, and we think, like, well, how am I making a difference? How am I actually changing the things around me? And I don't know how. I want to suggest to you that what is missing is your participation and your serving in a local church. Is it possible that God has actually chosen the church as his instrument to bring about the change that we all desire to see in our workplace, in our community, on our teams? Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's not you as a lone ranger Christian trying to bust down all the doors of darkness. Maybe it's just your faithful, long-term, committed, consistent service in the church. I'm suggesting to you that I think that's how God has arranged it. That's how he's designed it. Because where did all of this worship and serving originate? It's the confession that all things are for God and to God. Which means that if we're following this text accurately, our service and love inside the church is for the purpose of bringing all things in subjection to God. Uh, I want to point out that I mean, we live in politically crazy times. Some of us were thrilled when the, you know, the conservatives got in government because it was a change of government. Oh, everything's going to be better now. And then some of us cried when, you know, the, but this new government came in and thinking, oh, just it's so chaotic. And we hope for and we get excited about a change in regime in our governments. And yet, what did Jesus say to the disciples? That you're to go and disciple the nation. Friends, our God has the highest court in the land. He has the highest office. We are to instruct our government in all righteousness. We have been called to disciple and subdue the nations under the knowledge of God. We do not wait for politicians to serve the forces of God or the desires of God. We are that force. We are that institution. We are God's chosen instrument for the reign and advance of righteousness in the world, not the government. It is up to us to end abortion. It is up to us to establish equality under the law before people. It is up to us to do these things, to advance the lordship of Christ by the proclamation of his word. Friends, your gift in the church is far more significant than you believe. It's not just to run a good little local thing. It's not so that our church is just so well run. It's because we believe that the church is God's instrument. It's his, it's his work in the world. And so, maybe you don't know what your spiritual gifts are. Well, I'll just ask you two simple questions. What are you good at, and what do you love? I, I don't think that God calls you to do something long-term in the church that you're not good at and that you don't love. If your heart is surrendered to the Lord, there will be something that you love to do in the church. I know because... Some jobs we talk about, well, I dread doing. And sometimes we talk about jobs like, I can't wait to get there and do that. I can't wait to set up the coffee. I can't wait to see people enjoying that. I can't wait to stand at the door and greet. I can't wait to shake somebody's hand. I can't wait to stand up and preach. A lot of people don't like speaking publicly, but some of you might think that. Some of you might think, I just, I, I gotta express my gift. And you're not doing it yet. That's okay. We can talk about that. We can find out what your gifts are and how you can use them. I'll close with this. There are plenty of sideline observers in the kingdom. Very often the church is full of observers, consumers, 
by God's grace, we will not be a church that's full of observers. We won't be. We won't be because we won't survive if we are. I, 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 hope, that we're, I hope that we're such the kind of church that for observers, for long-term mere observers, you become uncomfortable with where you're at. I pray this church sort of squeezes out the ways that we are observing and being lazy and brings us into that loving, interwoven, body-type relationship, serving one another, being the gift and the member that we're called to be. Not because I want Evergreen Chapel to be so great. It's because it's for your good. It's for your love of God. It's for the glory of God that you're to use and expressed in the church. And so let's Again, return our thoughts to our children's story. The love of God calls us to serve rather than be served in the same way that Christ came to serve, not to be served. That's the basic essence of what we're talking about. We're not here to be served. We're here to serve each other. And in so doing, we all will be served one by another. Uh, but we have to come thinking, how can I bless? How can I serve? Because it is my expression of bodily worship. Let's not miss that undergrading. Let's not miss that foundation. That it is a foundation of love of God and bodily sacrifice for Him that we serve each other. Let's pray and then we're going to close in a song.